long dissertation that Paul writes about the importance and significance of the body, blood, bones, toenails, and hair resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And some of the importance and significance of it comes out here in verse 20 through 28. And so that's on page uh, 961 if you're using that blue Bible. And so Paul wrote these words. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, God, is accepted, the Father is accepted, who put all things in subjection under him, under Jesus. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. And now we pick up in Ecclesiastes. It's on page 556, Ecclesiastes 7, picking up where we left off last week at verse 15. As we continue our series through Ecclesiastes, from abated abated to abiding, from abated to abiding. So we're going to start at verse 15. We're going to actually cover all of chapter 715 through chapter 815. So 715 to 815. I'm just going to read verses 15 through 22 at this moment. Keep your Bibles open because we'll work through the rest of it as we go along. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them, shall come out from underneath being too righteous or too wicked. The one, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not... A righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. What I've read to you from 1 Corinthians 15 and from Ecclesiastes is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Deep wisdom, Lord, that's what we ask for. That kind of deep wisdom that guides us through the storms and sinister scenarios of this life. But also keeps us from drowning in a sea of disillusionment and disgust. Bless us with that deep wisdom for Christ's sake as we move further along in Ecclesiastes as we go from being abated to abiding. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So the sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide there. Several points. 
and some questions at the end. So I mentioned Todd Billings to you the other day. I actually mentioned his book, Rejoicing and Lament, and let me quote again then something he makes, where he makes this observation. He says, quote, many Christians don't seem to expect to suffer, assuming that if we are good Christians who obey God's will, then we might face obstacles, but not great tragedies that appear senseless, end of quote. I think it's a very important statement. Remember, Todd Billings, at the time he wrote this, was was tackling his life-threatening cancer and, uh, and his Calvinism. He's trying to pull the two together. And I think it's a very important observation. Many Christians don't seem to expect to suffer. They assume that being a good Christian and obeying God's will means maybe some obstacles, ah, but we'll never have any tragedies that appear senseless. And Solomon is now addressing himself to this very point. He's addressing himself to this very point, and I want you to notice the book end here. The book ends here. Chapter 7, verse 15 is bookended by chapter 8, verse 14. Solomon will not leave this subject alone. Here it is. In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doings. And then verse, chapter 8, verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, and there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Those are the bookends to our passage that we're actually going to work our way through. And Solomon is addressing himself to the very thing Todd Billings mentions. While he also warns us to beware of tricksy souls as I'm sure Golem would have put it, or Smeagol, however you want to remember his name, would have put it, Trixie souls, our own Trixie souls, and others. And so the first point there is verses what we just read in chapter 7, 15 through 22, it's mechanical misconceptions. Notice that Solomon focuses on, mechanical, on the mechanical mis- misconceptions that people slide into in verses 15 through 20 specifically. What do I mean? It's that notion that says, if I'm good, then only good things will happen to me. And if you are bad, only bad things will happen to you. That's a mechanical misconception. Cause and effect. If I'm good, then only good will happen. If if you're bad, notice I changed the pronouns. And if you're bad, then only bad things will happen to you, right? So that's the mechanical misconception that Solomon is addressing here. And yet the truth is this. End results. End results don't always and don't automatically define if one is on the right path or not. Let me say it again. End results do not automatically define if one is on the right path or not. Look at verse 15. Chapter 7 and 15, there's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life and his evil doing. In results do not automatically define if one is on the right path or not. And so there are some tricksy souls out there. Uh, it's the kind of tricksy, th- tricksy it's the things that tricksy souls will tell you. If you do all the right things, all the right things will be the end result. And yet the truth is, 
as I've already said, end results don't actually meet, uh, don't actually describe if one is on the right path or not. Some tricksy souls slide even over into moral cowardice by way of cover-up. The cover-up is either excessive righteousness or kind of in a James Dean bad boy kind of way, excessive wickedness. That's verses 16 through 17 when he's talking about don't be overly righteous, why should you die before your time, don't be overly wicked, etc. He's talking about this moral cowardice. I can't face the fact that the end results don't necessarily match the direction or what should be, and so I'm going to hunker down, I'm going to either be super righteous because I'm a coward, because I'm scared, I'm going to be super righteous or I'm going to go the other direction and be maybe super wicked. But the point is, is verse 18, no matter the end results, no matter the end results, whether the righteous are treated as the wicked or not, or the wicked are treated as the righteous or not, no matter the end results, we are to reverence God. That's how he puts it at the end. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. The one who fears God shall be rescued from both cover-up extremes, the excessive righteousness and the excessive wickedness. No matter the end results, we're to reverence God because here is where one gains value and valuable wisdom. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. It's exactly what Scripture says repeatedly to us in different ways. We just read it. Peter read it for us in Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Of course, you heard me begin the service after the announcements from Proverbs 9 and verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The wise man is honest enough to recognize the reality that the end results do not automatically define if one is on the right path or not. It's in verse 20. Notice how he puts it. After all he said about righteousness and wickedness, now he just lets you know up front. What does he say? Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. The reason why you know that the end results do not define if you're on the right path, you know, that you've, you're, you're righteous or whatever, is because there's really no one righteous. So guess what? None of us gets what we deserve. That's the point. Wisdom grasps this and says, oh, yes, of course. I'm not entitled to any good thing. Period. The point of the statement is clearly to pull us back from ever thinking that in this life everyone mechanically and automatically gets what they deserve. It's the difference. Here I'm going to steal a line from Bono of you too. It's the difference between karma and grace. Of course you don't get what you deserve. Praise the Lord. And you often get what you don't deserve. Praise the Lord. So as one example of verse 20, Solomon then quips verses 21 through 22. Look at those two verses again. Do not take to heart all the things that people say. (laughs) Lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Solomon's idea, I think, is the one that I say all the time. And you hear me say it often. Pointing your finger at others... 
You need to remember there are three more pointing back at you. I told my kids that all the time they were growing up, and you know, they got really smart, and they started pointing with all the fingers at me. <laughs> yes, just like that, Vicky. exactly. But it's true, and that's what Solomon is driving at there. You point one finger at everybody else, look how wicked they are. And if you have wisdom, God-fearing wisdom, you look down at your hand and you go, well, fiddlesticks. Fiddlesticks, that's a good Oklahoma word. Everybody say it, fiddlesticks. Fiddlesticks, there you go. That's the idea. And my friends, I wish verses 20, 21 and 22 are verses that we would put on our TV screens. And on our iPhones and iPads and cell phones. And every time you get ready to look on social media, instead of getting ramped up in rage at how rotten those other people are, and look at the things they say, actually having the wisdom of God to say, oh, you know what? I'm not going to take it to heart because my heart knows I've done similar things and said similar things. My friends, verses 21 and 22 is true in politics. It's true on social media. It's true in our religious and denominational strifes. It's true in our relationships. It's like the little league baseball player I saw once. I was out helping uh, coach a little league team. Our youngest daughter was on this all-boys team. It's the only team around, and so she got to play on this all-boys team. And we're at a game one time. And as little leaguers are wont to do, who have an attention span of about negative 10... The right fielder is out there in the middle of the game throwing his glove in the air as he's spinning around, looking around, picking his nose, doing everything else. And the coach hollers at him, Reggie, put your glove on and pay attention. What? So he finally gets his glove and pays attention for about two, two minutes, long enough to notice that the first, base, first baseman is not paying attention. And what does he do? What does he do? Coach, coach! Joey, our first base, is not paying attention. He's throwing his glove around. It's really funny. He just did it himself. He probably should be humble and not call out the other guy, right? And he was doing it. I love, I love little league sports. It is true humanity, raw and rugged, right in your face. It's just the reality of it. And so, my friends, it takes real, real God-given situational awareness and spirit-breathed humility to stop, to ponder, and to perceive where we have done the very same things as those other people. As you know, Randy Faulkner is a dear friend of mine, and they just left. They just moved to Georgia yesterday, or Friday or yesterday, and they're very sad to see them go. But Randy gave me a book, uh, one of many, by the way, because he knew my love language. But it's the Republican senator from Nebraska, Ben Sass, and his book, Them, which he wrote in 2018. I highly recommend the book. I love it. It's almost like he read my book, but I wrote my book later, so that's no fair. But anyways, but he does something just like what I'm talking about here. In one chapter, he goes through and shows how very much MSNBC and CNN often uh, go one direction, and they're very liberal, progressive in all their analysis, and they're all against Republicans, it seems like, and so forth, and they skew the reporting and forget things. And he goes through and chronicles all that, and it's very standard if you're a Republican. You're used to hearing all that. And then in the next chapter, he says, but you know what? I'm a right-wing conservative Republican. And it's not right just to, just to blame them for those problems, so I'm going to come home and start talking about us Republicans and conservatives. 
And so the next chapter, he shows where our guys do the exact same things, from Sean Hannity all the way on. That's the kind of thing Solomon is talking about here. Recognizing, having that God-given wisdom of situational awareness, that spirit-breathed humility to realize, to perceive and ponder why, you know, we've done some of the very same things as those people. So not take what they've said and done to heart. Because your heart knows you've done those things. I love the book, by the way. But that's Solomon's idea. And so beware of tricksy souls who entice us with mechanical misconceptions, our own tricksy souls or others. And so then in verses 23 through 29, Solomon uh, describes malevolent madness. And so let's read verses 23 through 29. Malevolent madness. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. He will say in this paragraph three times, the scheme of things, or the scheme, so pay attention to it. And the scheme of things, and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness, and I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this is alone I found, that God has made man upright, but they, were, they have sought out many schemes. Malevolent madness. Notice that the preacher here delves into the whys and the wherefores of wickedness and rottenness there in verses 23 through 25. And as an illustration of the wickedness and rottenness and the whys and wherefores of it, he looks then at men and women, verse 26 through 29. Without getting lost in the mud puddles and the ruts in the road here, let me just tell you the overall point of verses 26 through 29 is this. That neither man nor woman is as whole or holy as they could be. Gender has nothing to do with purity, prudery, or perversion. Sin is beyond gender and it runs through every sex. Now, I appreciate that. I find that very helpful. I grew up in a time when it was often, if not said, it was implied that women were the epitome of virtue. That comes out of the Victorian era of the 1800s, that women were the epitome of virtue and men were a bunch of slugs and potential drunks. But the reality is women sin just as much as men do, just in womanly ways, and men sin just as much as women do, just in manly ways, right? And so sin is beyond gender and beyond our sex. There's none of us who is the epitome of virtue, male or female. I appreciate that. That's wisdom. That's healthiness. It's very useful. And that's the point behind his statement, I haven't found a woman. And Solomon, by the way, had a thousand women. That's a funny concept. 
and, and only one man out of a thousand. It's just hyperbole he's using here. But one man out of a thousand. And if you think about it, he's a king. And so guess what? He had thousands of men who had been trying to garner his royal largesse and his regal liberty. So I haven't found a woman or one man out of a thousand. Just hyperbole. And so the reason for, the, for some trouble, the reason for some evil, the reason for some depravity and so forth, though it's not the reason for every evil, is personal and willful corruption. Verse 29. This alone I found, that God has made man upright. Think of the garden for chapter 1 and 2. But they have sought out many schemes. Chapter 3 and the rest of human history. Personal and willful corruption. Derek Kidner in his commentary puts it this way. This verse, quote, this verse brings the refreshing certainty that our many devices, our clouding of moral issues, our refusal of the straight way are our fault, not our fate. End of quotation. The rottenness is our fault, not our fate. I think that's really helpful. It's really significant for us to grasp that and let that get us. And that's what Solomon is doing there. And so, dear friends, beware of tricksy souls, both our own and others. And so then in chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, he moves to monarchical, monarchical, just monarch kings, monarchical mismanagement, monarchical mismanagement, verses 8, 1 through 9 in chapter 8. So follow along as I read. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. The wise of heart will know the proper time and the just way, for there is a time and a way of everything. We're back to what he said back in chapter 3, a time and a season and all of that. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's troubles lie heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All of this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. It takes wisdom. It takes a tough-minded sobriety, verse 1. That's what that little ditty he said there. That's a tough-minded sobriety. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of the thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. It takes a tough-minded sobriety to be able to negotiate and navigate the particular state of affairs laid out here in chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, especially, as he says at the end of verse 9, man has power over man to his hurt. 
And so to live under the management of a lone monarch, that's Solomon's situation. He's the lone monarch. But then, my friends, most of human history, most of fellow, our fellow humankind throughout the centuries, even up to the present, many of them live under a lone monarch. And those who don't often live under an oligarchy. What is an oligarchy? A rule of elites. It's very similar to the same. And so to live under the management of a lone monarch or a monarchy requires a lot of savoir-faire. Now, you need to learn this term so you can impress your school teachers and doctors, okay? Savoir-faire. I think I pronounced it properly. It just means, savoir-faire means the ability to speak and act in social situations. To live under the management of a lone monarch or an oligarchy requires a lot of savoir-faire while rubbing shoulders with the regal and the royal, for us to live the good life, we will always need to know what palaces and parliaments refuse to recall. That that we are limited, not limitless. That we are creatures, not the Creator. That we are finite, not the infinite. That we are the made and sustained, not the makers and sustainers. And that much is out of our control. That's what Solomon is driving at there in verses 6 and following. For there's a time and a a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be. None of us knows the future. It's out of our control. We're limited. For who can tell him how it will be? And then we die, etc., Knowing that gives you the guidance and the strength to be able to recall how to walk through this season if if you're rubbing shoulders with monarchs and so forth, with the regal and the royal. So then, you know, my friends, think about the serpent's ploy in the garden in Genesis 3. The ploy of the serpent was to entice our first parents into thinking that they should be unrestrained by their limits, their God-given limits. That they should know more. That they should do more. That they should have more. Has God really said you shouldn't eat of this fruit? You know, He knows that if you eat of it, you'll really be superpowers in your knowledge and perception of good and evil. You'll have more. And you'll be more limitless. Do you hear the serpent's ploy? That's a ploy that's being echoed even today. His ploy was to continue to to guide them to disdain their creaturely limits and seeing those limits as faults and failures. I love a book I just picked up recently and started reading. It's Kelly Capick is his name, and some of the elders and deacons maybe remember him. We've read a couple of his books in our Uh, a couple years back. Kelly Capick, who's a PCA, uh, 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 he's a theology professor at Covenant College, and he wrote in this new book that's called You're Only Human. And I just got through the first chapter, was delighted because he's been listening to my sermons, clearly. And he said this, quote, recognizing and rejoicing in our particular kind of finitude Recognizing and rejoicing in our particular kind of finitude is a massive challenge, especially in the affluent-driven West. This shows up 
not just in our unrealistic expectations, but how about, about how much we can accomplish in a day, but also in our failure to value rest and to value slow-growing relationships, end of quote. I thought that was really perceptive in his part. That's the world we live in, and tough-minded sobriety, tough-minded sobriety will help us to recall our limitedness in a world that refuse, refuses to be limited. And tough-minded sobriety will also help us to keep all of our political battles in perspective. That's verses 3 and 4 of chapter 8. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand on the evil cause. For he, the king, does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, etc. and so forth. This tough-minded sobriety, having it means that we begin to recognize that we are not fighting. We are not fighting the final battle between light and darkness. We are not fighting the final battle between good and evil here under the sun. And we make no pretense of doing so. That final battle must wait. We sang about it in the hymn after the, before the confession of sin. That final battle must wait for the one whom God has resurrected from the grave. Body, blood, bones, toenails, and hair. Loosing him from the pangs of death because it is not possible for him to be held by death, Acts 2. That final battle must wait for the one who now has all authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, 18. That final battle must wait for the one who now reigns until he has put all his enemies under his feet and destroys even the last enemy, death, 1 Corinthians 15, 25-26. This tough-minded sobriety helps us to tone down the rhetoric so that we're not out there thinking this is the moment that will save the world. No, no, Jesus is taking care of that. It helps us to tone that down and to realize we're in the hands of God. We're the made and sustain, and he's the maker and sustainer. It doesn't mean we don't stop being involved in politics. Don't mishear me. But we quit buying the lie and drinking the Kool-Aid that says that our moment is the most important moment and our political position is the most important political position and our party is the kingdom of God. In the name of Jesus, that's hogwash and poppycock. Anyways, I'll get off my soapbox, sorry. And so, my friends, it's this recognition and this tough-minded sobriety that we can finally be firmed up and fixed. Again, as, as one of the Psalms puts it, we didn't read this Psalm, but I read it my, this morning in my devotions and had to add it to the sermon. But Psalm 112, verses 5 and 6, the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. So, dear friends, beware of tricksy souls in palaces and parliaments, as well as tricksy souls promoting political salvation. Then he moves to talk about moral mayhem. It's chapter 8, verses 10 through 13. Follow along here. 
Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against evil an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because uh, he, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Notice that Solomon observes that morality can be turned inside out and upside down in a society. That's verses 10 through 11. It's not comely, but it's common. It's not comely. Comely is another word for nice looking, right? It's not fitting. It's not comely, but it's common. Where morality is turned inside out and upside down. When good is called evil. And when evil is praised and elevated as enlightened good. It's not comely, but it is common. And it becomes especially revolting, verse 10 to see this moral mayhem wearing liturgical vestments and clerical collars or being paraded about as the newest ethical moral high ground. Look at verse 10 again. Then I saw the wicked buried. They said they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. It's especially revolting in the house of God, but it's, it's not comely, but it's common. And yet notice that the preacher observes here that frequent successes at sinning do not remove the reality that there is going to be a day of reckoning. That's verses 12 through 13, that there will be a day of reckoning. There will be a day where Jesus, the Savior of humankind, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world should be saved through him. That Jesus, the savior of humankind, the Lord of the world, will come again to judge the living and the dead. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.10 to Christians, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ that we may give account for all we have done and receive for what we've done in the body, etc. Therefore, my friends, no amount of our rewriting, no amount of our rewiring or reimagining God's law will end in the end. <laughs> no amount of the rewriting, rewiring, and reimagining of God's law will win in the end. For now, though... For now, we may and we often will see immorality and see injustice triumph where moral men and women lose and malicious women and men win. We will often see it. We will see it in church. We will see it in society. We will see it in our civil governments. But it's not the end of the story. There will be a smashing thrilling, climactic conclusion 
where God puts all rights to wrongs. But until that day, beware of tricksy souls, both our own and others. And so, verses 14 and 15, there's this mechanical misconception revisited. So let's go back to verse four, chapter 8, verse 14 and 15. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy. I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Notice that we end there. That last verse ends there reminding us of Augustine's statement. There's a joy which is not given to the ungodly, but to those who love you for your own sake, whose joy you yourself are. And this is the happy life, to rejoice to you, of you, for you. This is true joy, and there is no other. That's where he ends, and he will end this way all the way through this book, as you've begun to notice. But notice in verse 14, we are back to where we started in chapter 7, verse 15. That this is a topsy-turvy, inside-out, upside-down kind of world where Trixie's souls are often having a heyday. But walking with Solomon in the path of sober wisdom, we can come to enjoy the good life where others find only the displeasing and dreadful. Or in the words of Derek Kidner in his commentary again, Simple satisfactions are soundest. I'm so glad he used three S's. It made me happy. Simple satisfactions are soundest. Well, here then I end with two thoughts. The first, my friends, comes from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. You've heard me refer to this before. In the past, Solzhenitsyn was a Russian dissident. He was scooped out of the front lines of World War II as he is fighting tooth and nail against the Nazi invasion. And he is picked up and he is thrown into a prison camp because of something he wrote in a letter or something like that. And he spends decades in the prison camps. Throughout all of the terrible devastations and deprivations he experienced and observed, he came to some stark realizations. And he put them together in his book, the Gulag Archipelago. I have butchered that name a thousand times, but there it is. The Gulag Archipelago. And one of the observations he makes that it, to me is great, is important, is significant, that stands out to me is this one. Quote, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us, and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Isn't that what Solomon is referring to when you get over here to verse 11, chapter 8, verse 11? Because a sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Because God does not come in judgment right this second, the heart of man. Your heart, my heart, Mr. Biden's heart, Mr. Trump's heart. 
is set to do evil. We lean in that direction. That line between good and evil is not them and us. It's us. It's in us. Part of Solomon's observations here is that we're all tricksy souls. And though we may feel self-righteously justified in our verbal, virtual, grandstanding, fuming in rage, ranting in fury, pointing our fingers at those other people, (laughs) there are always those three fingers pointing back at us. And therefore, it would be best for us to stop and to take a breath and to see that the line of good and evil runs right through the middle of me. Secondly, no one, my friends, no one, at least for the present, gets what they deserve. You think again of chapter 7, verse 15, and chapter 8, verse 14. Even our Lord Jesus Christ, the truly, only righteous man who did no wrong, who always submitted to the Father and always did what was pleasing to the Father, Even our Lord Jesus Christ, whom no court could actually charge with sin. Remember, Pilate and Herod both said repeatedly, not guilty. The righteous one was strung up, so to speak, by regal and religious rottenness. He he who was thoroughly righteous was treated as if he was thoroughly wicked. He is the epitome of chapter 7, verse 15, and chapter 8, verse 14. But lo and behold, there is a God on the throne, and so the Father was using this twisted, mangled sense of justice for our salvation. And he validates his son Jesus' uniqueness, his his one-of-a-kind righteousness by raising him from the dead, body, blood, bones, toenails, and hair. As Peter puts it, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Therefore, let us take courage from what Ecclesiastes is longing for and sees only in a mirror dimly that in the death and the resurrection and the ascension and return of our Lord Jesus Christ, that Ecclesiastes 7.15 and 8.14 have begun being turned inside out and right side up and will one day finally be fully accomplished. That's our hope. In the words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., as he put it once, quote, we must accept finite disappointment. We must accept finite disappointment, but we must never lose infinite hope. That'll preach. We must accept finite disappointment, but we must never lose infinite hope. So, my friends, in this regard, let us leave us. Let me leave us in a healthy and a health-giving place. We often say this. We don't often say it, but there are several months within the year that during communion we say this. We talk about what we proclaim the mystery of our faith. 
we say three things. And this is our infinite hope. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And so, dear brothers and sisters, with me, let us proclaim the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord our God, for your Son, Jesus Christ. The truly righteous one treated as if he was the worst wicked one ever. He did it for us and for our salvation. We who are truly unrighteous to the very core of our beings. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. We pray, Lord, that you would give us that biblical and spirit-inspired savoir-faire, that tough-minded sobriety to know how to manage and live through our age. That we, Lord, would not put our faith where all of our neighbors put their faith. But we would put always our faith in you, trusting you. Lord, I pray for anyone who is struggling right now, anyone who is being crushed under oppression, who is being beat down with wicked, by, by wickedness. I pray that you would set them free. And I pray, Lord, for all of us that we would come to accept finite disappointment, but we would never lose infinite hope. In Jesus' name, amen.